We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way, and I, 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 I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 1,320 days into 14 days to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Melissa from Cutting Through the Matrix. Melissa, it's once a fortnight. How are you? I'm okay. I was just telling you that I'm getting over uh, something. <laughs> but, something, so yes. I, it's, well, I, we all I, know it's COVID. <laughs> we all know it's COVID, yes. I sound kind of crummy. No, it's fine. So first of all, I have to congratulate you on uh, being one of our highest downloaded episodes ever the last time you were on. So uh, congratulations, bravo, for turning so many heads in both directions. <laughs> so you you have successfully um, you've successfully broken the uh, the counter, if you will. Oh, well, I you, you mentioned that before we started recording. I, I thought maybe I was a, a kind of a divisive guest, as it turned out. Divisive and um, <laughs> attractive at the same time. So you brought in, I think, just about everybody from every corner. So it was uh, no, it was good. It, it was good. Uh, it was a, it was a great discussion, and well, the uh, the listeners thought so too. Uh, well, right. some didn't, but some, <laughs> some some did. But that's okay. That because that's what we do, right? We have the discussion. We have the dialogue. That's the point. Because if we yeah. don't have the dialogue, if we're one sided, if we're myopic in our views, then, well, we're going to end up in a very bad place. So we've been myopic in our views for a very long time, I guess, as, as Western society. And you see where it's gotten us. So we're going to have to stop being as um, short sighted, if you will, uh, if we're going to uh, try and salvage this and make any kind of progress. But anyway, I was telling you before we started, I said, I have to be honest with you, I'm I'm slacking a bit and I'm. I'm kind of off. I, I haven't quite recovered from where I've been last week. And I'm I'm just I'm about half a degree off. I said, I really don't know what I want to talk about today. You know, usually I have a lot to say. You usually I, I sit down and and I really don't have to do a lot of planning or or Bruce is in and we don't have to do a lot of planning or Marty or Ned or any, anybody. And we, we don't have to plan. We can just kind of go with it. Well, today it, it's just strange because today I feel like I'm writer's block. Is that the right word? I, I feel like I'm just blank and I don't know why. But maybe you can help maybe you can help me out. Maybe maybe you can um maybe you can start things off. Maybe you can get the ball rolling and and we can go some way with it. Well, one thing that you said uh, about the the episode that I was on a couple of weeks ago, it made me think there are a couple of people, this just crossed my mind yesterday and I haven't done anything with it. I haven't actually made an invitation, but 
you were you were saying that the whole point was not to be myopic, but to get the conversation going. And I what what has registered with me in my own like interior world is that what is going on in the Middle East it it, if it affects me profoundly, even though I don't have friends in Israel and I don't have friends in Palestine and yet it just feels so personal and close up to me. And I read an article just skipping through the news yesterday. I read something about two women who worked together on a project. Um, and I, and I thought they would make great guests for real history. And one of them is the she is a writer, and I, I don't remember what all her background is, but she is Jewish, and she's married to a rabbi. And her best friend is Palestinian woman, um, raised for a while in Palestine and um, then in the U.S. And that what they are basically doing is a kind of outreach program into the community where they are of getting the dialogue going. It's kind of female focused, but I think it's broader than that too, of just, you know, what we are is humans who have families and marriages and communities, and there's a lot of love there. And what we need to try to do is keep conversation going at all times without diatribes and hatred and, you know, the, the, the propaganda that keeps us on one side or the other. And I thought they, that, that would be an excellent real history, but I haven't done anything about it. But I, I think that that is the point, you know, sometimes the needing to take a side and, and the reason why one takes a side is because, you know, you want to be right, or you want to be the winner, like in a, a sporting event, you know, but when so much is at stake, when lives are at stake, which they always are whenever war is involved, it's just really important to have as much communication as you possibly can that is on a, a grassroots level. And, and, and Johnny, you and I are a true grassroots level, you know, that this oh, is, we are. we're, you know, we're, <laughs> we are, yeah. we are just regular people. Like we're people, people look at it, look at what we do and they're like, Oh no, you guys do this. And you're, you're professionals. You have journalism degrees or you're broadcast people. And I'm like, <laughs> no, we just, we're yeah. just people that just care. That's it. Yeah. And, and I, I think that what is called for right now is as much communication as possible, r really listening. And and I I remember um, years and years ago, someone who was a professor had had something that they used to say, but it really struck me and stayed with me. Um, when I'm talking, you should be listening. And he said, if my lips are moving, yours should be still. And the trouble with social media, is, but modern culture in general, is that everyone's lips are moving all of the time. They're, they're seldom still to listen to what another person is saying, to actually hear it without the cogs in your own brain turning over preparing your retort or your, uh, I'm going to 
cut them off at the knees with what I have to say to that. That means that you're not listening. Well, I, I liken it back to, um, and I, I think I, I mentioned this to you last week when we were wrapping up, I liken it back to uh, Hesiod, where he said there are three types of people in the world. There are people that think things through. There are people that listen to people that think things through. Those would be the people that are not speaking, right, when, when you're listening. And then there are people that neither think nor listen, and those people are stupid and dangerous. <laughs> and well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, that's that's ancient philosophy. That's that's true. You know, that goes back to, you know, that's ancient Greek philosophy. And we look today and we find it's true. In in the context you're describing, that's what it is. It's all of those voices. You know, you, you go in some of these um uh the, these online uh postings on whatever social media platform, it doesn't matter, and you look at the comments section and it is just visceral hatred from both sides and mm -hmm. it's just it's a shout down and you can't even get any kind of any kind of perspective or or context on what's actually being discussed because it's just like um it's it's anarchy it's it's organized line-fed anarchy is what it is that that's true and the the sad thing is is that most people are only parroting some portion of the authorized propaganda that they've heard from whichever side they've chosen to align with but before though i you when you were talking about hesiod the next thing that came into my mind was the movie idiocracy <laughs> and the, the 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 setup there and i you don't need to know the setup but anyway the 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 soldier works down in the basement in the archives because he's just kind of failed downwards and the sergeant comes down to give him a lecture and tell him he's going to get involved in some other project and the the sergeant said what have I said before you know you either in the in the army you lead follow or get out of the way and the soldier said well I've always tried to get out of the way and the sergeant said wrong answer you're supposed to lead <laughs> That's but is, I think yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, unfortunately, I, I mean, I would say that that soldier is a little bit smarter than average for trying to get out of the way. But, you know, true, most yeah. you know, most people are just following. And that's the tragic yes. truth. Yes. And, you know, I I had thought for the longest time, I thought there would be something that would come along. I mean, I I, I was watching events unfold many, many years ago. It's, it's been, you know, 10, 15 years ago I, I, when I started to become really politically aware. And I thought there's going to be this massive awakening. People are going to to want to understand what's actually going on. And that has never happened at all. That's right. I'm long past the point where I thought that's going to happen. When you start to realize that it is what you say. You know, I, I, I liken it back to um, to Carol Quigley's book. When I, when I first read Tragedy and Hope, and he spoke about it in there, it was, it was very briefly, he talked about being an individual. And he said that most people, regardless of, of what country you come from, it doesn't matter. Most people don't like to make decisions for themselves. Because if you make a decision, then that implies that you're going to have to take responsibility for that decision. If you don't make the right decision, then that's going to obviously put you on the wrong track. And if you're on the wrong track, then that's going to cause you to potentially make another wrong decision, another wrong decision, and another wrong decision. So it's easier for people to just go along with the, the group idea, to just go along with whatever's given to them by the state, because they don't understand and they've never had to, to actually take this responsibility for themselves and extrapolate out different scenarios and then make your choice, knowing that could be the wrong choice, but that's what makes you an, an individual. And people just don't want to do that. Well, it, it not only makes you an individual, but that is actually what it means to be alive. You see, because a person who 
makes mistakes and then the mistakes snowball and they and they go down they are still alive they they're a person who's living their life as opposed to somebody who's having their life lived for them by just going along and letting the experts decide and you know that uh, uh, they're dead it's I like I said, if you w- I could reference Seneca now, but that's okay. We we talked about that before because he shortness of insight. You know, those that are not living, you're you're not alive. Those that are living are alive to the truth, right? That's yes. That's what you are. If you if you don't if you don't grasp that concept, then nothing else is going to work. You're just going to just go along. You know, you're gonna you're gonna fade off into the into the crowd mindset. Well, you know that this I'll tie this back to religion too because. What is in my mind watching this in the Middle East is how important it was for this time, because I I mentioned to you right before we started to record that someone had sent me um, Colonel Douglas McGregor talking to Tuck, Tucker yes. Carlson. Yes, I haven't watched that uh, yet, but I intend yeah. to. Yeah. And I, I was watching that and several times, at least twice, but maybe three times. And I, I was only able this morning to get through about an hour of the talk. So I have a little, a few minutes more to complete. But he said the word Armageddon, the, you know, the arm, our, our Armageddon or ready for Armageddon. And he was cautioning um in this particular conversation with Tucker, some some caution, but he kept saying Armageddon. So when I view what is going on in the mi- Middle East at this time, with everything else that we have lived through in the last several years, and with all of the things coming into play, what you know, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the Great Reset, et cetera, et cetera, for the people who have been given such a indoctrination in their religion, it does really feel that this particular event that's happening in the Middle East right now has a different portent than past aggressions towards Israel or aggressions from Israel towards either Hamas or the Palestinians. You know, this this feels different. And I think it's the religious element of apocalyptic thinking, of end times thinking, that this is Armageddon. And when you hear people, when you hear uh, military leaders or retired military leaders and politicians speaking in verbiage from Bible prophecy, I find that very scary. So that's where my mind has been going, you know, in the last week is that there has to be a way to have conversations about this and gently help people to see where their responses are made so emotional and vitriolic. Uh, Because the, the point that I was getting to is people have a need to be right. They have a need to come out on the winning side or to be right. And nowhere is that seen more pronounced than in religion because the stakes are so high. The stakes are either, you know, the kingdom on earth in some utopic form or, you know, heaven or or paradise or, you know, whatever your religion tells you comes next. I mean, this is the most potent and in some cases toxic foundational propaganda that people receive and succumb to. Yeah. 
I I agreed. I, I I didn't know that he had used that exact terminology. That's interesting. Yes, he now said that, Armageddon. Now that that's been said, okay. Now that yeah. that's that's quite fascinating. I have to say because I've been doing a lot of a lot of reading uh, and a lot of research into different military strategies and different doctrines. You know that are that are diametrically opposed to ours. That's actually that makes sense now because if you if you look at it in terms of just war fighting strategy, right? Because that's that's what he is. He's a he's a military guy, right? He's, he's mm-hmm. a career military guy. So I expect him to to make references to military operations and, and things like that. He was, you know, one of our most decorated guys in, during the Gulf War. But to speak on that at that level using that terminology, we've been educated here in the West to believe that that is apocalyptic. It's the end of the world. If you embark on the strategy of nuclear conflict, then it's going to be the end of the world, right? That's what we're taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The doctrines that are in the Far East, such as, for example, China. You know, for example, if you if you look at their military doctrine, if you look at um, what their doctrine, we can only assume is based on the old Soviet doctrine because they were set up the same way. They were set up under the auspices of of that. Any of these countries where the, their nuclear arsenal is is the foundation of what they stand for when it comes to to military force, they're taught that nuclear conflict is a winnable battle. It's not Armageddon, that their population will survive it. The Armageddon talk is specifically propaganda that's meant to be directed at us to put us into a state of perpetual fear so we stand down. Well, I I can actually see that the legitimacy of that uh, of what you're saying, both as a tactic and as a possible outcome. But I do believe that in the U.S., I, I can't just make a statistic up, but I I am going to I'm going to anyway. I think that of do the your best Christ- with it. I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the Christian population in the U.S. I I think that uh, I'll say that that evangelical Christians are a very high percentage of the Christian population, and I don't. I I haven't looked in to see the breakdown, and and not all evangelicals are necessarily uh, having sharing the same eschatology or end time scenario, but I think very many of them are. So what I'm countering to the Chinese, what you're saying is that hunkering down in fear and just, you know, no, we can't do this is all is really the opposite of people wishing to fulfill prophecy. I'm, I'm actually saying that there are some Christian congregations who are being just as weaponized to go to paradise as we know that some populations of Muslims are weaponized yeah. to go to that, paradise. What was that program? I can't think it's 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 right there. It's on the it's on the tip of my my tongue. I cannot think of what it was. Uh, clergy response team. Do you remember that? That was, I don't. That was okay. This was something that was set up by the Department of Homeland Security back when 9/11 happened. The idea was is that they were going to go in and they were going to I don't want to say co-opt, but that's kind of what it was. They were going to co-opt the clergy across the United States and they were going to get them to get their flock, if you will, in line if there was ever a crisis. 
And mm -hmm. so that uh, I'll have to see if I can go back and dig that clip out. It's a very old clip, uh, but I'll have to go back and see if I can find it. But that might have something to do with what you're talking about, because I believe uh, that they got involved in the churches to to do exactly what you're saying. Oh, I I uh, I think so. I, I I mean, there's no I I know so because what you had with Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority um, and that far right Christian kind of evangelical thing, which they say, oh, well, you know, there's no more moral majority, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all, um, you know, we're being told on the one hand that that was way back then during Reagan's era, but that was responsible for that push back in the 80s. But I just learned recently that George W. Bush would not have been elected without the 40% evangelical vote that he received. Um, and people are played on to vote for someone that they think, you know, it, it's your platform. What is your platform? Well, a big part of George W. Bush's platform was his born again Christianity. And this rhetoric was used at 9-11 and it was used going into Afghanistan and it was used going after Osama bin Laden and, and going after um, Saddam Hussein. And, you know, it's it's weaponized Christian rhetoric. This is this is interesting. I, I just pulled this. This is actually this is from FEMA.gov. OK, so FEMA, mm -hmm. obviously, that's under the umbrella of DHS now uh, because of 9-11. Right. So if, if we're going to have a national crisis of some kind, then that's who's going to lead things up. Right. It's going to be FEMA. I went over to FEMA.gov. This is on their website. This is an actual document that was published in June of 2018. Engaging mm -hmm. faith-based faith faith and community organizations, planning considerations for emergency managers. And if you go to the title, uh, the table of contents, listen to some of what they're going to do. Benefits of this approach to engaging faith-based faith and community organizations, expanding views of faith-based and community partners active in disaster, government partners that may help reach faith-based and community organizations. Steps for engaging would be uh, engagement, assessment, self-guided and group training, technical assistance, participation in scenarios and exercises, and integration. That sounds like quite an overreach, in my opinion. And it sounds like mm -hmm. they're trying to take over everything within the churches, all the agendas, all the talking points, everything to keep people in line. Yeah, abs absolutely. And I mentioned to you as well off air, I I'm just going to go ahead and, and give the shout out here. This this was also Darren. Darren had sent the um, Darren in South Africa. <laughs> so we'll say Darren had sent me the um, Colonel McGregor and um, Tucker Carlson interview. And I, I just give him a shout out because he's put a lot of thoughtfulness into what is going on in the Middle East. And it's nice for me, as I know you know this, to have the sounding board and the feedback from listeners. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Who are giving you things to think about. Well, a, a day or two ago, he sent me a, a video, which I watched. This was made um, 17 years ago, and it was entitled Burning Conscience, Israeli Soldiers Speak Out. Now, whenever you're looking at something like this, you all, you always want to look at who is funding the making of this. How did they come together? And I, I haven't had time to do that yet on this one. But these two soldiers interviewed here were veterans of the Israeli Defense Forces and members of something called Breaking the Silence. So that Breaking the Silence, I haven't looked into. But it was a very good short 
interview where they talked about basically institutionalized corruption or institutionalized uh, strategy, which was not... Well, it, it, it just, it was something that went against these these men's conscience in terms of how the IDF operated in places like the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, etc. And I am trying to find the quote here where they, they point out and I may not be able to f- to find it exactly, but one of the one of the commenters did the courtesy of saying that at a certain point in the conversation, um, the one of the veterans said the best weapon that Israel has is U.S. public opinion, and that's a very thought provoking statement. And uh, it it's when you look at the way that the churches have been used to tell people what they should think about what's going on. I looked at um, quite a handful of American pastors this week, either speaking behind the pulpit or uh, things that were written that were coming from their churches and their organizations, where it was totally one-sided. Uh, standing behind Israel, no matter what, no cautions, no saying, you know, the Hamas have done a very terrible thing. This, These are acts of terrorism, but let's take a step back and not attack all of the Palestinian people. Let's look at the broader picture. There's no, there is no attempt to be even handed or to present a full historical picture at all. This is purely American pastors shepherding their congregations towards one agenda and one outcome. And you see a lot of, they're not all Christian Zionists. Some of them are are, are churches that don't claim to be Christian Zionists, but the, the, uh, the rhetoric is still totally in support of Israel and totally against Palestine. And I'm just saying that If this was a situation, say, for instance, like the Ukraine and Russia or many, many other geopolitical situations that we could look at, there would be no religious rhetoric. It would simply be geopolitics. Why is this happening in this region? Is what is happening in this region a threat to our country? Should we be involved? Should we not be involved? That is not the kind of rhetoric that we're receiving about this Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's counter. The religious rhetoric is woven from all sides all through it. I think it's it, that's that's an excellent point. I, th- I think the wider implications here are what the target audience is. And mm-hmm. they know that it's a galvanizing issue all over the world, all over the world. It's in every household, nearly one side or the other. It doesn't matter from a propaganda standpoint. It's meant to be that divisive wedge in other parts of the world. It's not about Israel and Palestine. It's not about Mm -hmm. that. It's about dividing the rest of the world on an issue that they make personal for you. That's right. And, you know, I was listening to uh, actually the redux that I I put up on Sunday. Alan Watt was talking with Jackie Petru on Sweet Liberty Radio. And they got into some interesting topics, including British Israelism. uh, But Jackie made an interesting point, which then she and Alan talked about, and it was how did people reconcile 
in their minds that a creator would have a chosen people. <clears throat> and if you when you when you look at the, the the three religions, the main religions that are involved in this conflict, and I'm, I'm I'm bringing Christianity into it. So so you have Judaism and Islam and Christianity and Christianity because we are the target audience uh, audience for the way that this is being presented and the participation of the Christian world in this event and its eventual outcome is key. It's very important. So if you look at those three religions, they all descend from the prophet Abram slash Abraham. All of these religions say that they are monotheistic, that they began as monotheistic religions. That's debatable. Many historians have written otherwise. But at the source, they would all say that they share the same God. And if you want to even say, you know, above the concept of God, creator, how can it be reconciled that that creator, that same God, that one God has chosen one of them as his people? And let me just ask a question rhetorically. Would you want to love that God? Would you want to surrender to a God who chose one people as special above all others? And that's where we find ourselves. So that's a difficult thing. And one of the things that Alan said to Jackie, which was also quite deep and thought-provoking, is how people would have to overcome their indoctrination. And that's just said so easily from him. But the hardest thing in life to do, even for people who say that they're awake, and that is the point that Alan made, which is that people who say that they are awake, so many of them cannot overcome that that last that last hurdle to see past all of what makes the matrix and religions are part of that. I've often wondered that question for many years. I've been pondering that is what will get people over that last hurdle. You know, I, I've sat down and I've had countless conversations with people over the years and people that were will have this, they try to have this dialogue. I remember I was, I was talking to somebody in the US a couple of weeks ago, lifelong friend of mine, very nice person. And this is a person who says, look, I'm living in the best part of the country and, and we're all awake down here and we all know what's going on. Then they get into the left, right stuff with me. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you don't have any idea what's going on at all, but you think you do. And this That's is right. this is this is the biggest problem. This goes all the way up the ladder, all the way into our policymaking institutions and in these these big privately funded or even government funded think tank institutions that are wrong about absolutely everything. They think that they are geniuses and they're idiots. They don't know anything. Uh, that I mean that that is true. That is true. And this this is why when you're you, there's always something I think to be gained from listening to people, even if they know very little and, you know, just to see where they're coming from. But when you identify when or put your hopes in something like a political leader or a religious leader, you are identifying and putting your hopes with with someone who is human and therefore has many 
blind spots and limitations and, you know, so limited. And this is how we're used, you know, it's that caution not to join a group and anyone who claims to speak for the left or the right or this religious uh, idea or another, that's a group. And that's groupthink. And it ultimately boils down to you're an individual or you are not. I think that plays to the ideology game too as well, doesn't it? If you believe in a specific, no matter what it is, I'm not being specific here, but if you believe in a specific ideology, then there are forces in this world that understand that ideology as you do, and they use it to manipulate you. That's right. Chances are very strong that the ideology was... created whole cloth for the purposes of manipulating you. So I want to turn to this, right? Since you were talking about the, the Middle East and we we have this this situation here that can get out of control and it can get out of control really quickly because no one is actually thinking. No one's no one's stopping to ask any questions. At least that's what I see. No one's asking any questions. No one's and if questions are being asked, no one's asking the right questions. We were asking questions from the start of this. If you go back to our conversation two weeks ago when all of this started or thereabouts, mm-hmm. my first question was, what about these stand down orders? What about the these protests that were happening in Israel and Tel Aviv? that were against Netanyahu. And now all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. he's got himself an emergency government. What about all these things? There was a protest that was scheduled for, I think, this week sometime for him to actually be removed and or call for removal or or something to that effect. I I don't know the specifics of it, uh, but I read that yesterday. But now all of a sudden, we're having this big, wider war and, and we're going to draw in all these other players. Right. No one's asking questions. No, no one's asking these questions. At least, you know, the people that should be asking these questions, they're not doing it. Instead, we're going to develop this into a wider conflict. and We're going to continue to push that, you know, churn that propaganda machine out. So I asked you this a little bit before we started. And I would like to discuss it. How do you think the American population, how do you think our population, how do you think they're going to react if and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but the buildups in Eastern Europe, as you said, you know that's that's nothing new. They've been doing that for almost uh, almost over, well, it's been over a year now. Uh, everything that we have is is basically it's coming to Germany, it's going to Poland, and then you've got now. Well, I think we've got eighteen thousand troops in the Middle East right now, and that number is expected to increase. And we've got two carriers that are in the Eastern Mediterranean. How are the American people going to handle it if there is another draft scenario? I'm talking like a, a World War II kind of draft scenario. Well, one of the things that you said off air was that you thought that to get a draft scenario that they would need to do another 9-11 kind of event yeah. on, on the U.S. Something to make but, it personal. See, yes, but I I, and I, I disagreed. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, I, that's, I, that's fine. Yeah. No, because, you disagreed on a good on for a good reason. I, b- because I I think that they have already achieved what they need to make it personal. I said that I thought that the American people would vote in a majority or would say in the majority if they were polled or questioned to institute a draft for this war. It might be close, but I felt that it would be a majority that would support a draft. And I, there will, if, if something like that would happen, there would be protests. It would probably come down along party lines, I'm thinking. 
But the reason that I say that they've made it personal already is because 9-11 event, yes, that's been 22 years, but it doesn't is... doesn't seem real, does it? It, it doesn't seem it does real, not. but it it has been kept. It's one of those things that has been kept front and center of the American mind. And since 9-11, you've had basically ongoing conflict. I mean, the Biden just pulled the last of the troops out of... Afghanistan, what, a year ago? <laughs> if you want to call it that, yeah, but that was, yeah. that was well, a disaster. I mean, but yeah. it, it, was a, it was a debacle for sure. But, <laughs> uh, but, but that, you know, in, in other words, in the ensuing years since 9-11, it has been constant conflict and the American people have been more or less supportive of that because it's still so fresh and their minds front and center what happened 9-11. And no one has ever thought to overturn things like taking your belt or your shoes off at the airport or going through metal detectors or any of the other um, 24-7 surveillance things that were instituted as a result of that. So it's already institutionalized in Americans' minds. And I also think that that the religious component of that and the fact that there are so many religious Americans who see this as a fulfillment of prophecy. You had said something about the fears that would be played on. And if you wanted to talk more about the the Chinese part of the equation, that would be interesting. But I think that as much as many people who would be fearful of such a conflagration, they can count on people who will support it because they believe that they're supporting biblical prophecy. The one little codicil that I will make here or addendum to that thinking is if religion or religious ideology, as opposed to a connection to your creator, a devotion to your creator, if that ideology has a component to it that you could cynically call my insurance policy for the hereafter, is that strong enough in people's minds to actually fall on their sword for? I wonder, you know, what, what, what is one willing, what is one actually willing to die for? as opposed to what they say they're willing to die for? That's a good question. That's a really good question. As far as the uh, the China uh, thing that you wanted me to talk on, well, I can give my best guess. And as is the case with just about every other person out there that are far more qualified than I am to discuss it, we can only do that, what I just said, with China. And that is give our best guess. And the reason I say, and I, I mean, I've got literature on it and I've got uh, studies on it that I'm very much looking forward to getting into that I haven't yet. But China has never been forthcoming with their military doctrine in, in terms of that. They're open basically with their, their psychological warfare and we, we can identify that. But as far as their, their military doctrine, we can only guess on it based on what they show us, uh, which is almost nothing. Now, the only assumptions that we can make 
are their system, as I said previously, was set up by the old uh, Soviet Union system. And so they make their decisions based on that type of structure and that type of hierarchy. And those types of political decisions are woven into that. Politics drives their policy uh, when it comes to their military doctrines. That we do know. But as far as what their intentions are, we have defector testimony, and that's the best that we can we can do. We also have um, and something that I've been promoting here for a while. I'm happy to send it to you if you like. Uh, it was reported by the Epic Times back in 2003. It was a secret speech by General Chiao Chen, and it was meant to be given to top party cadres only. It was never meant for Western eyes to see. But uh, the people that smuggled that out of communist China and got it to us are all dead now. But in that speech, he does reference and does make uh, mention of the types of psychological warfare and the types of biological and chemical and nuclear warfare that will be carried out against the United States as part of their overall strategy. So that I can speak on. But as far as anything else about their their main driving force behind it, myself or, or anybody else, we can only speculate. So I don't really have an answer for that. You know, not a definitive one anyway. Like I said, all we have is, is defector testimony. But the point but, that you made about um, the would there be a nuclear war? Yes. And that China's part, that yes. that is an interesting that part. Yes, that part they they are they are kind of they are open about that. If you look at uh, China's nuclear uh, their nuclear armament right now, I saw a report a couple of days ago, and it was um, they expect to have more nuclear weapons than what we currently have. And so their concept is to dictate the terms of everyone else's surrender by that, and that is part of the strategy of it, is promoting the strategy of Armageddon and, and getting people to stand down and scaring people into submission. That's And most notably, the people at our policymaking level. You know, the people at our policymaking level don't want to alarm people. And so therefore, they ignore the truth. And we base our foreign policy in responses to such actions on what makes us feel good. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's how we that's how we make policy, because we don't want to alarm the public. We don't want to induce panic into people. Nobody wants to invest in a fallout shelter as their future. Nobody wants to uh, stop building places to shop or places to eat or sports stadiums or whatever. You know, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to hear that. People are happy in their their entertainment filled lives. And that's what makes money. So this doom and gloom type of scenario for a future is not a very bright one for people. So they don't want to be given the grim details of it. So we just ignore it. But the study of Russian military uh, doctrines that I've done, uh, and that goes back to the end of the Second World War. And it was a book that was put out by the, and I have a copy of it back here, was put out by the Rand Corporation. And it was printed in 60, oh goodness, 60, 68, 69. And it was from a marshal of the Soviet Union who wrote all about their intentions during nuclear war. And the only reason we can say that that's still relevant today is we watched Russia's actions in Ukraine. And they're following the same military doctrines, exactly the same. They haven't changed. They're still following their World War II doctrines. And so therefore, if you base that on their old doctrines, it's still current. They're still following the same strategies. So there's no reason to think that they wouldn't use the same nuclear strategy. And part mm -hmm. of that is to deceive us into thinking that, well, if a nuclear explosion happens or uh, a nuclear exchange happens, then it's the end of the world. You know, we're 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 going to lose all hope and we're going to have a nuclear winter. And which, by the way, there's an interesting study I can mention on that one. But it's just going to be the end of the world and we'll never recover or anything like that at all. Now, as far as the nuclear winter thing, let me put that one to bed. <laughs> there was a study that was done by uh, Herman Kahn. 
Okay. At the, you remember the fat man? Yeah. Herman Cohen. Yes. At the, uh, yeah, he was with the, uh, the Hudson Institute or excuse me, the Rand Corporation. Then he went to the Hudson Institute, but before he left the Rand Corporation, he did write a book on it and I can direct you to it. It's called on thermonuclear war. You can read about it. Uh, it's out there. The book is expensive. You can buy it from the Rand Corporation for, I believe, $150. And I've seen it go for as high as $2,000. i am not joking. Ooh. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's for like the first edition printing from back in like the 60s or whatever. But they did an entire study, took several years on how this would work. If we went into a nuclear exchange with another country, no matter who it would be, of course, at the time would be the Soviet Union. But if we had the nuclear exchange and our cities were destroyed and, and all of that, then we would recover in a period of three to five years minus luxury goods. Now, why would that be the case? Because we have the ability in the United States, in the West, we have the ability to reorganize ourselves and to rebuild our economy based on free market and supply and demand. If you look at these other countries, such as China, they don't have a free market economy. They do to an extent, I suppose, but they don't have a system of supply and demand. The Soviet Union did not have a free market economy and didn't have a system of supply and demand. Therefore, they would never recover. So in reality, the propaganda that they push onto us about the end of the world would actually be in reality it would be closer for them than it ever would be for us. Uh, yeah, in theory, I can see that as having some truth in it. But in in practice, I, I think that America is now part of the free trade economy, which is not free market ec yes. economy. I agree with that. And, and also, you know, supply and demand is an interesting idea. But when you see things... When you see DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, oh, and the do we the have woke. to bring that? <laughs> do we have to? But no, you're you're absolutely right. You go right ahead. Well, it's a it. No, nobody is demanding that, and yet this is what the corporations are supplying. And when you look at corporate strategy and they're the green and sustainable part of corporate strategy that is that's actually the driving force now you what you see in the corporate world is really a world economic forum platform and this is neither free trade nor supply and demand so i you know yeah. in theory I, what you say is sound. Yeah, well, in, in the, it, for the time, I guess maybe I should have been more clear for the time. That was the way that that it would have worked. But I do mm -hmm. agree with you now that has drastically changed. Now we have instead of for lack of a better term, instead of communist policies in business in communist countries, we have diversity, equity and inclusion that has replaced That's right. that here. In That's the West. right. Yes. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you know, every, every once in a while, just to be um, a good sibling, if I pass through the living room and my, my, my brother, he likes the sports and I might plop down for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How about them Jays? How about them Jays? That's right. <laughs> and I may plop down for a few minutes and, and, you know, stare at the television and usually my participation, but he seems to enjoy it is just to make, you know, sarcastic comments. <laughs> Yes, of course. Or or ask stupid questions about what's going on and and what's at play, what's at stake. But when I see the advertising that is on that, and sometimes he and I will talk about that. The the advertising is so politically correct, and he's even made the comment that these corporations 
they don't really care about their bottom line or they, you know, look at Budweiser, what happened there. I mean, you, you see, oh yeah, eventually there was a little fallout there, but they stayed on that for a long time on a campaign that was you know, there was no demand for that, <laughs> for what they were they're supplying. They're still not. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. still not. But no, you're, you're right. Oh, by the way, did you see who just bought, uh, was it a hundred, was it a hundred million shares of Anheuser-Busch? Did you see who bought, or a hundred million dollars worth of shares of Anheuser-Busch? I did not. Bill Gates. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. <laughs> I should have guessed. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got plenty of water in his aquifers to, to make all that beer, doesn't he? Um, yeah. But no, I, it is it is that. And, and I can tell you that there was a point in time that corporations did care about their bottom line. But you're right. They don't any longer. Uh, they're they're all on board with this this uh, woke or DEI or, or whatever agenda. And I think it's quite frankly, I think it's appalling. And they're walking themselves to their own gallows. If that makes sense. Well, in a, a you know, I, from, from a business from a business perspective, yes, I definitely think a lot of the middling players will be um, eliminated. But I also think what we're talking about is that Carl Quigley idea of uh, CEOs as the uh, feudal overlords, and how long has um, corporate welfare been on the go? So businesses that are not able to support themselves, if they're following the party line, they get propped up. And remember, I, what, what, was it you and I who were talking about, uh, I think we were uh, maybe a month ago, talking about uh, Tesla and all of the in incentives and tax breaks, I mean, it, to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of million do millions of dollars every quarter. That was just in the U.S. alone um, because of how important that company is in the uh, the sustainability agenda. It's like a, a, a leader and therefore it can be a loss leader in the sustainability agenda. And that what you're looking at there is a combination of pure corporate welfare and just graft. Yeah, it is. I actually, I have a paper around here somewhere. I'm going to have to dig it out because now you've, you've provoked that thought in me. And it was, it was right after COVID and it was put out by the World Economic Forum. And it talked about how they're going to rapidly change all of business in the world based on on their ideas and everything that, that, that they put. Well, actually, that they're not their ideas, but the, the things that are being given to them to push on everybody else. And in there, they talk about how they're going to be the ones, the, the CEOs, the, the business class, they're going to be the ones that pick the winners and losers. And I'm sorry, but that's not how supply and demand works. As you said, no one's asking for any of this. It would be mm -hmm. one thing if you actually had a, a demand for it from a consumer and then someone would come in or multiple people would come in, make bids for whatever portion of that logistical supply line. And then that's what would facilitate the rest of that business process. But that's not what's happening. You have a bunch of people that have grabbed control of this entire mechanism for whatever reason, for uh, just for the sake of stealing it. And they think that they know better. And they don't. They, they actually don't. They don't know what makes anything actually work. You know, if you if you look at this... Um, uh, th this green and, you know, whatever this agenda, this wind and solar junk. You know, if you look at that again, no one's asking for that. I mean, 
I am a believer in the fact that we should move away from petrochemicals at some point, but we're in no position now to do so. We have to have something as good or better to replace what we currently have, and we have nothing. Wind and solar is not going to cut it, and these electric cars aren't going to cut it either. They're producing a whole bunch of things that nobody wants to buy. Uh, if you look at the uh, the electric car market, you've got dealerships and manufacturers now they're not producing these Volkswagen, right? One of the bi- like Germany's biggest auto manufacturer, they stopped building on the supply line electric vehicles because the dealerships can't get rid of them because no one wants to buy them. Mm-hmm. So there's I, there's no yeah. Please go ahead. Well, there is an element of lysenkoism to this, I think, uh, because you you have something. What one of the things that always mystified me was hydroelectrics. And with all of the water in the world, and if you you look at continents, especially a place like Canada, but the US, Europe is the same. I mean, there's just water everywhere. And hydroelectrics seem to me like such an efficient way of generating power. And yet it's more important that they shove up windmills everywhere and tell people to put solar panels on their roof. I mean, th- that just doesn't make any sense to me. So you're you're talking about something that where bad science, like Lysenko, bad science is institutionalized and it's going to happen no matter what. And that's the same, you know, electric cars. I mean, there there've been plenty of documentation that shows how bad the manufacture of these giant batteries are for the environment. It's ditto with windmills. You know, how do you recycle them? Well, you can't. What do you do with the blades? Well, you bury them. Um, how many birds get killed by a windmill? Well, you know, it, what do they actually generate? What 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 happens? The the inefficiency is just that's a kind word, but the insanity of some of these alternate things that are being foisted on us has been documented, but they carry on. So then you have to ask yourself questions like, well, why do they carry on? Will, you know, deagle population projections um, don't really know because you're never going to have mainstream coverage on fallout from these injections. But the sources that I get information from, it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling human suffering and death. Uh, are, are, you know, w- w- how big is the cull that we're living through? Hard to know. Hard, hard to know because where do you, you know, who do you trust for the information? So is this a kind of theater then that is playing out? W- will we be so greatly reduced that we're not going to be reliant on wind power or solar power because we'll be so great. You know, who who will be left that needs to be, you know, fueled, heated, cooled? That's a good question. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We'll just leave that as an as an open ended hanging question, uh, right? Oh, so that was I'll, that was so dark you, and bleak. I know, I know. We'll give you the last <laughs> word. Um, 
Right. So in the uh, in the wrap up here, uh, what's been going on over on your website and what do you have coming up? And tell us about your latest podcast. Uh, well, the real history that is going up tomorrow is called Jankness. It was a lot of fun. And this it will it's going to have some good music clips in it. I, I did not post one last week because I was ill. So this is the one I actually recorded to go up last week is going up tomorrow. And the um, latest excerpt that just went up was uh, excellent. That that was listener supplied excerpt on the Frankfurt School. And oh, we're going to have yeah. to have a good conversation yeah. <laughs> about that one day, I assure you. All right. And uh, I'm not I don't know what happens next on real history. And I don't know what happens on the Redux because I'm I'm a kind of uh, last minute just see what happens and see what inspiration hits me. Kind of like what I we did today. Like what we did right. today. We, we had nothing. <laughs> yeah. Those are usually the best conversations. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will see you in two weeks. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Again, that is Melissa from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. I encourage all of our listeners to get over there and take a look at the treasure trove of information where she and the other curators maintain the life-collected works of the late, great Alan Watt. Again, CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And her podcast is Real History with Melissa. That is available everywhere you get your podcasts. That will do it for us for today. See you in two weeks, Melissa. Thank you for being here today. Thank you to all of the listeners. God bless everyone and have a great evening.